Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Tommy Tomlinson, and I'm thrilled to have him here. Tommy is a really accomplished guy. He's got a successful podcast called Southbound. He uh, works at NPR. He was a columnist for a long time for the Charlotte Observer. He's written a ton of pieces for ESPN, the magazine. I've been a fan for a long time of his work, but didn't know I'd have him on the podcast until I read his new memoir, which is out this month. And you should order from Amazon today or wherever you order books. The book is called The Elephant in the Room, One Fat Man's Quest to Get Smaller in a Growing America. And I'm going to read you my blurb that I gave him just as a way to set this up. And I don't give out a lot of blurbs, but I wanted, when I read the book, and I, Tommy, man, I read the book in, I think, a day and a half. You know, I, I, I just couldn't put it down. It was all the things I love about reading and that it, and whatever else I was doing, I couldn't wait to get back to the book. And that's a real, a real testimony to your abilities as a writer and your openness and honesty as a human being on the page. And, and what I wrote was what a gift Tomlinson has to take a subject this difficult, this personal, this well, enormous, and to somehow make it read like a summer cliffhanger, but with depth, feeling, and huge moments of catharsis is an amazing achievement. It is also a kind-hearted book though not to yourself so much. Generous, empathetic, and funny just when you need it to be. Tommy Tomlinson, thank you for being here. Thank you, man. I really appreciate it. So, in a, in a, because you're probably, from a name perspective, a little bit less well-known than many of the people on the show. Like 99%, yeah. A little bit less well-known than most <laughs> of the people on the show, though I don't know, after this book comes out, that may no longer be the case. Can you just, why don't you just do, uh, in a nutshell, what the book is and, 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 and talk about just where you were in the moment you wrote, wrote the book. When I was uh, approaching 50 or a little past 50 in uh, 2014, um, I have struggled with my weight my whole life. I've been fat since I was a little kid and um, have never been able to get on top of it, always struggle with it, yo-yo back and forth, tried all these different diets, tried a million things that didn't work. Um, and was just really depressed and struggling with how to, how to deal with all this, getting older. Uh, a good friend of mine who was also an overweight guy had died of a heart attack at 50, and I, I could see that coming. I could see my future. And um, then in the middle of all that, um, my sister died, and she was overweight. She died from complications from some things that were clearly – uh, brought on by her weight and that just you know those things just brought me up short and I realized if I'm ever going to do something about it I, I have to do it now I have to start figuring it out and, and beyond that what I have to do is not just you know figure out a diet plan or whatever because there's a million of those what I thought I had to do was to do a lot of self-reflection, understand myself better, try to figure out why I ate so much, why I didn't exercise, why all those things. And that's basically the path of this book is. I mean, especially because you were someone who always loved playing sports. Oh man, I played from when I was 12 to probably 30 or so. I played basketball just about every day. And you were coordinated. You were, oh, yeah. uh, I, I mean, I, I wasn't a star, but I could play. You, you could know? play. You could throw in cash. Sure. You're, sure. you're a guy who has uh, hand eye coordination. Yes. Yes. And um, I, I think it's important to say that at the start of this book, 
You're near 500 pounds. I was the, the one of the first sentences of the book is I weigh 460 pounds, and that to me. That was basically the biggest secret of my life. Anybody who saw me would know I was overweight, but I never told anybody the number because I thought the number would sort of put that shame in concrete. I mean, I understand it, you know, because at, at the fattest I've been, that I probably once got up toward 250. And um, you're an amateur, Brian. No, I know. I'm not, uh, <laughs> I, I'm not even in the conversation. But what I can relate to is this uh, very deeply, right? Is this idea. This, this, this notion of not being able to put yourself, you, you know, this, this, this emotion of you and I were just talking about um, the drive-by truckers, and they have that great song, "The Righteous Path." Yes. And when one knows the righteous path, but can't find one way, one's way onto it, even when it's lighted for us, even when the, for those who've traveled it ahead of us put out their hands to take us with them. If you're somebody who, for whom the um, aroma of a pizza is stronger than the very conscious, clearly enunciated and understood idea, I'm going to die sooner. Uh, your, your book is an incredible, because you present the reckoning to you, it, it makes one reckon with it. And so I've reckoned with this. Now, I am not, I'm less than half the way you were when you were at your, you know, start of the book. Sure. But I know the feeling of, and, and I want to ask you about this. I know the feeling of buying a pint of ice cream, knowing I shouldn't be in the store buying it, knowing I shouldn't take it home, knowing I shouldn't open it, and then knowing I shouldn't eat the whole thing. What do you, how, how and then we'll go backwards, but having taken this journey, how have you identified what's happening in those moments? I think first of all, they're they're really, and for you it was four pints. I know. Yeah, well, yeah. I, as I as I think I said in the book, they, you know, the serving size of Ben and Jerry's is half a cup. Nobody in history has actually eaten half a cup at one time of Ben and Jerry's. Um, I, I think for me there really is something akin to a blackout there, where you you sort of think about it and you start, and then you look up and it's gone. You know, I, I can't tell you how many meals I've had where, you know, I sit down, there's like a bite of fish and chips in front of me or a burger or something. And I sort of go out of my own head for a while. I'm not thinking, I'm not doing anything. It's just the things in front of me. And I look down 10 minutes later and it's disappeared. It really is almost like a, like a kind of out of body experience in some ways. And then, so I had to figure out sort of what why why am I having that? And so uh, some of the things that I came to was I had such little kind of self-esteem or such a little feeling of self-worth that I feel like I could force my myself not to think about these things, even though I knew it was bad for me. I mean, even it, though you knew the next uh, the, the the thing that started happening to me, and it's it's why I think I, I, I I've never gone to where it's so difficult to recover. Sure is when I'm at my heaviest, and this is not something I talk about much on the podcast, when I'm at my heaviest, something in me changes. And so the piece of fried chicken stop, um, as I'm eating it, I'm feeling the shame of it. Oh, yeah. And I'm feeling, I'm not enjoying it anymore. And that's when I 
I can always tell that's when I'm going to turn myself around and lose 15 or 20 pounds to reset so I can enjoy it again. It's that great scene in Sideways where Paul Giamatti's, you know, drinking that incredibly expensive bottle of wine at the burger joint, like in secret guilt and shame. And, and I mean, that, that I really identify with that because you're, you're, there's this thing that it at the same time brings you great pleasure and great shame, you know, and that, that short term pleasure, that little jolt that I get, and, and maybe other people get it in different ways, but that I get from that ice cream or that pizza or that burger or whatever is so powerful that it makes me forget about, or at least make myself you know, push away. But it's fascinating. Long term consequences. It's fascinating because in the in the book, and again, the book is funny and smart, and it's not a "woe is me" book at all. Um, it's every page is entertaining. But one of the things that's incredibly clear right away is how smart you are and what a good writer you are, and that, in fact, your self image isn't all bad. You know that you say right at the beginning of the book that you have a handsome face, that you have nice <laughs> eyes, but you do sort of talk about. And it's clear from the ways you interact with people that you did know also there were certain skills and abilities you, you had interpersonally. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the the reasons, I mean, I, I, somebody asked me a day or two ago, like, you know, how's your personality changed as you've lost weight? And, and I haven't noticed any great changes yet. One of the changes I worry about a little bit is, well, I become less empathetic to other people because I feel like one of the results of me being so big is that I, I have a real, you know, empathy heart for other people who are going through whatever issues they're going through. And, and so I think about that a lot. And so it's not that I was I felt like I was a total loser because I was winning in other parts of life. But I think that's true for everybody. I mean, there are a lot of smart, brilliant, uh, clever, funny alcoholics. Sure. And there are a lot of people who gamble too much or shoplift, whatever they do. Often often those people, the self-esteem issues come back to childhood. Yes. And you spend a lot of time talking about childhood. Yeah. But one thing you you that I loved that you painted were the happy parts of your childhood, the sure. way in which your empathy, connection, love for almost idolization of both your parents. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're they're fantastic. And um, could you talk a little bit, because I do think clearly the way you even describe the grease in the pan, <laughs> the smell of it, when yeah. the, you know something fry, that was going to be fried would hit it. Sure. Is amazing. Can you just talk a little bit about... Um, how you grew up, where, what the environment was. Sure. Even, we'll talk about how food fit in, yeah. but but just set the scene for mm. us in terms of how well-read they were or not, where their educational profile, as you do in the book, their con- and how you fit in in the, in the family unit. I, I'll, I always say that no matter how far I get in life, I will never have to travel as far as my mom and dad get, did to get where they got. Um, I, we all, they grew up in the South on separate farms in Georgia. They, they picked cotton, they were sharecroppers. And, you know, my mom always described getting up at dawn. She would cook for the whole family. Her mother had become disabled at some point. For her family, not for yours. Her family, for her yeah, family. for her family. Her, her brothers and sisters and her mom who had been disabled and their dad was this whole disaster who had, who was gone most of the time. 
And so she gets up first thing in the morning before dawn. She cooks for the whole family, makes biscuits, makes breakfast. Then at dawn, they go out to the cotton fields. They pick cotton literally 12 hours a day. They come back, they eat again, you know, and then they go to bed. Or she washes clothes and they go to bed or whatever. They, she and my dad, clawed their way out of that life into basically a lower middle class blue collar life. They met uh, down in Georgia where I grew up on the coast at a seafood packing plant. They were both working there. And so that was the life that they made it to. The distance from that fucking cotton field just to this factory, the factory jobs that they had was immense and enormous. And as, as you mentioned, they had very little education. My dad quit school in the sixth grade. My mom quit school on the first day of the fourth grade. They had a lot of competency, though. Yes, they were big readers, loved to read. My dad had two sacred texts, the Bible and the Bass Pro Shops catalog. Right. And my mom- Because you too, talk about the fishing stuff a lot. Right, right. And my mom, her whole life, read romance novels by the by the bagful. We would go to the used bookstore and literally load up grocery bags with these things. And she'd read them all. And then we'd take them back and train them in for more. So that's what I grew up with, with these two people who did not have a great education, but had tremendous character, loved to read, loved words, and loved loved good writing. Mm-hmm. And that's where... And it, But it also seems they were, they felt so blessed to have you. Well, that they indulged... They, they, uh, yes, yeah. I think especially my dad, because my mom had two children from a previous marriage. I was my dad's first and only child, and he was 48 when I was born. So I think he probably had to think that might was never going to happen for him. And so, yes, he indulged me. He would work at the at CPAC, the, the, the seafood plant, and come home. And on the way home, he would stop by the canteen and work and buy me a pack of peanut butter crackers and a, and a thing of chocolate milk. So every day or every night, whatever he worked, when he came home, that's what I had waiting for me. And I don't even remember that. But he remembered it. My mom remembered it. And, and my mom used to tell him, you know, don't do this. It's not a good idea. And he would say, but I, you know, I have to do something for him. That's yeah, how. That's beautiful in the book too, because he's working mm-hmm. so hard. He's away so many hours, right. but he wants to connect with you in the way he knows how to connect with you. Yeah. And, and plus I, I think in my family, and this is not just a Southern thing, but it very definitely was in my Southern family. Food is how you express love. And, and, you know, my, nobody in my family ever had any serious money, but we felt like in food, we were as wealthy as anybody. And well, he could, I mean, the fact that he could go out to the canteen and buy something and bring it to you meant something to him. Oh, it was about where he, the thing you just said, where, where he was in life. Yeah. He could give his kid a treat. Right. I mean, when, when my mom and dad were growing up, this sounds like one of those like poor depression stories. And it is literally they got at Christmas, they got an orange. Yeah, that was like the big treat. They would get an orange for Christmas. That was the only orange they get all year. And for him to be able to do, go to the vending machine and buy me a snack was just an incredible advancement in their lives. This is an important thing to think about. People, we don't all think enough, certainly like the podcast listening audience who has a smartphone. Right. Even if you're n- not doing well. And, and I'm sure plenty of people listening here are wondering how they're going to get through the year and might have like lost a job and things might be really tough. But very few of us in the current culture can understand there's that great moment in The Godfather too when he brings the peach yes. home and he puts the peach on the table and you can feel that that peach, my wife and I watch, have talked about that peach moment many times in our lives as 
the way in which that's a sacrament of their love, that he found a way, even though he was fired from that job, to bring home that peach and put it on the table and say, things are going to be all right. Look, we're having a peach for dessert tonight. Yeah. And so you can relate to that. Oh, that because that, he that, could relate to it and relay that, that to you. All that food. I mean, not just the the crackers and the chocolate milk, but the 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 Sunday dinner is not just incredible food, but carries this enormous symbolic power that this is our wealth. This is the the gift that we can give to you because we don't have money. You know, we can't. I can't buy you a bunch of cars. I can't buy you a house. But by God, I can make some fried chicken. And that's the 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 incredible. Uh, power of that that gift but what did it um you know you describe in the book the way the smells would hit the house and oh, how you would want it and i think talk a little bit about it because i'm, I'm trying to locate when because these are all intellectual ideas but sure. i'm trying to locate when it emotionally got its hooks into you and, and how well, I think emotionally, first of all, for me, it was me responding to that that love they were showing, right? That this was uh, a moment, you know, when when we cooked, like like you mentioned, we fished a lot, and we would we come home and clean the fish. My mom would throw them in the skillet, fry them up, and that smell was just so intoxicating. And it's it's a all those sensations, the smell and the taste, and the the noise of the popping in the skillet, yes. all those things are bring back such happy memories for me because my family was happy. Everybody was happy. We had provided for one another. You know, we were about to sit down and, and enjoy the fruits of our labors. And it was this incredibly happy moment. And so, um, I think the way sometimes we think about these things is if one happy moment is great, then two is better. Right. And, and did you find yourself, um, now you say in the book you were big young. I was. I was I, I've never been anything but fat. I was a fat three year old. I was a fat eight year old. And but still when when and describe a typical, not just the thing you described sort of could be in any you know, frying up some fish and serving them with a little something, but the way you described the sort of scope and scale <laughs> of a big Sunday night dinner. Right. So walk uh, us through what that would be. Well, and so, don't don't skimp on the hush puppies. Oh, like yeah, really absolutely, walk absolutely. us through. So we would have the big meals that we would have every year were our family reunion. Right. My uncle Ted and Aunt Estelle in Nahuna, Georgia. Um that's usually where we gather. And so of course everybody would bring something. And you'd get there and the, the table, you couldn't even really sit at the table. Everybody had to go sit in the living room or on the porch somewhere because the table is just completely covered <laughs> every inch with you know, this huge platter of fried chicken. There would be pork chops and roast beef and venison if it was like the fall or hunting season or something like that. Then there would be what I always call the white food group, like deviled eggs and potato salad and mashed, mashed potatoes, all that sort of thing. Um, and then cornbread and biscuits always and hush puppies always. If there was fish. And would you guys have biscuits and cornbread at home too sometimes? Yeah, we do. Oh, all the time. Biscuits, one or the other, virtually every meal. Um, cornbread mostly, because that's what we just had most of the time. Biscuits sometimes, but one or the other all the time. Right. And, and sometimes And both. mostly fried food at dinner or oh, often yeah, fried. Yeah. I just want to, yeah. Often fried food or, I mean, so this is the South, so even the vegetables aren't healthy, right? My wife, who's from Wisconsin, came down to visit one time after we, you know, after we'd started dating. We came down to see my mom. And my mom had made this like stewed squash and my wife tasted it and said, this is incredible. 
why do you make this? And my mom said, well, you start with a pound of ham. And, the, you know, and so there's no, there's really no such thing as a, as a, you know, there's no, Southern vegetarians are a rare breed, you know, um, because even the vegetables have meat in them. You know what else is smart? Starting the new year off strong by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash moment to hire the right people. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates for you. Its powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes to identify people with the right skills, education, and experience, and actively invites them to apply to your job. So you get qualified candidates fast. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash moment. Hey, look, if you love the show, if you listen to the show, show your support to the show and ZipRecruiter by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash M-O-M-E-N-T. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash M-O-M-E-N-T. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. When did you start feeling emotionally conflicted? Because like, I don't think I did until, I know, until um, my sophomore year of college, I had a bad breakup. In the shadow of which I started smoking too much pot, ordering too many cheesesteaks from like the local place that would deliver at college. I gained 30 pounds and started to, at that was when for me, this conflict started between the joy I would get from the melty cheese, onions, steak, bread, and the knowledge that that made it that much harder for me the next day to fit into the jeans or to play basketball or to talk to somebody. But I imagine for you, it happened much sooner. It may have happened sooner. I, I, I think about, um, I mean, I, I certainly I had my share of issues with it earlier. Um, you know, kids calling me fat ass in the, in the hallway. And then that was from the time I started going to first grade. What, okay, so how did that affect you? Well, I, it made me sad, but I have to be honest. I don't think I really connected it like, like in a super strong way to what I was eating at first. It's like, uh, I didn't, I just didn't think about it because that's the way we ate at home. Nobody told me to do any different. I didn't really, I didn't really understand what a diet was, you know, when I was a little kid. So you mean when you were even 10 or 11, you didn't realize, well, that's, well. That, that's when I started, I feel like maybe middle school, certainly in high school, it started, um, where I noticed it was, I was unattractive to most girls, you know, and, and the girls I, I really liked and was interested in and that sort of thing clearly had no interest in me. And it could have been for other reasons, certainly what I saw and, and the obvious reason was that I was fat. And so that, um, you know, that is when I remember it really being conflicted. Like, what am I doing here? If I don't get in better shape, I'm never going to have a shot with any girl, much less these, you know, the, the one. How did you start comp? When, so middle school can be a brutal, brutal time for the sure. best of us, right? Yeah. And everyone or almost everybody goes through a week or two that's uncomfortable in middle school. <laughs> yeah. But what were your coping techniques? Because uh, someone listening here as a 13-year-old is having a hard time. So, and I, I do know from the book that you it seems to me you always had friends. You weren't a completely lonely right. person. Right. You seem to have been able to deflect in some ways or settle into a role. Can you talk about a little bit how I, you thought that stuff through? I think part of it is sort of 
compartmentalizing a little bit. Um, I, I did. I had lots of friends. I had stuff I really enjoyed doing. I was in the drama club. I was in the... The, the fat kid usually doesn't have friends, though. So how well, did you... A uh, lot of the time, the fat kid doesn't have friends. Well, I, I will say, I mean, I you know, I look back on this now. I didn't really feel that way necessarily then. I think I was probably in the upper percentile in funny in my class. Well, that's a big deal. And, and so I felt like you know, among my friends, I could, I could make them laugh, you know, and that sort of, and I think probably unintentionally, that's like a skill I had to develop. It's like, I need some friends. You know, I'm a big fat guy. I mean, nobody's going to naturally be friends with me. What if I make them laugh? You know? And, and, and so that too, I had, I had some skills in writing and things like that, that some really, um, wonderful teachers encouraged and, and, and led me down, uh, those paths into becoming a more creative person and that sort of thing. So I had these things that I could sort of divert my sure, but did worries you, to. Did it, did it make you feel like an outsider then or not till later? It made me feel like an outsider at certain key times. Like I never went to the prom. You know, because right. um, there was no way you were just asking there, somebody to the prom. No way, I'm just asking some girl to go to the, to go to the prom. Uh, and so you th just stay, those, those you nights, I'm at home, and so those in those little moments, I could feel it really strongly, and in other moments, I could sort of, for the moment, forget about it. You know, like I, playing basketball, playing sports. Did you, you play know? on the team? No, I just right. I was a rec league, rec but, league. But you played basically. a lot, and then you knew. You knew, hey, they can underestimate me, but I got on the basketball court, I could do some damage. I could do some damage. And and it was one of those things, one of the great things about sports is that it takes you out of yourself for a little while. Like you're not quite so self-aware. As writing. Because you're playing, yeah, as writing, exactly. And that's one of, that's one of the things I- Well, you talk about when you start writing at college, you got active and stuff. Yeah. In a way that maybe the administration didn't always. Well, yeah, I, mean, I wrote a I wrote a story that the administration didn't like, and it sort of spooked me for a little bit. But then I came back to it, and then the, and really fell in love with, and realized that's what I should be doing in my life. And and from then on, you know, it's that was thirty five years ago. That's all I've done ever since. Can can you do a great job of describing how to fit in? I don't mean just like with friends. I mean how to actually physically fit in the world. Yeah. Can you? Because I don't. I, here's the thing. I think. Um, I don't think. So so many of us are overweight, but I don't think most of us carry around enough conscious empathy for w what it is. Right. It's real easy for me at two twenty five or two thirty to look at you in life and be like why doesn't that guy fucking do something about it, right? Sure. So in those moments, but we're at our worst. But at our best, can you just describe, because it's incredible in the book, what happens when you walk into a diner, how you have to think your way through that situation. So when I'm going to a place that's unfamiliar to me, a new place, often if I, if I can, I will Google it the night before or an hour or two before or something, and I'll, I'll Google whatever, whatever interior. And, and get whatever pictures are there of the way it looks like inside. And there are places- So that it's anxiety, right, from the moment you get the invitation. Sure. There are places that I won't go to because I know when I 
look at the interior. There's nowhere there where I can really fit. Well, How do you suggest to the person you're supposed to meet, let's go somewhere uh, else? Sometimes I say, you know, can you, I, I almost never say, I can't fit there. Uh, what I'll always say is, oh, this would be a little bit better for me or something like that. Can we meet somewhere like that? You know, um, so booths. But you looked the night before. I looked the night before. Booths are hard for me, especially if the booth, if the table doesn't move. You know, if it's like a fixed place, it's a tight squeeze. Uh, a bar or a counter if the bar stool is fixed, it's often a really have to wedge myself in there between oh. the bar and the counter. Yeah. Tables are better, but tables, uh, if the chairs are narrow, if they have arms, sometimes those are difficult too. And so, so when I'm looking, when I'm doing this little scan, I'm trying to figure out, I'm like, it's like the Terminator. I'm like trying to figure out where's my target for this place. And so the other thing I do is when I do that, I get there really early. And so I'm, I'm always, almost always when I meet somebody, I'm the first one. You're there. like Jimmy Conway in, yeah. uh, in, in, um, the Goodfellas. Yes. Yes. Getting I'm, there early. Yes. And when you're back to the, to the wall. Right. And so I, I get there early so that I can go through all this sort of setup without having to like embarrass myself in front of this other person. Because it's still, even as a, recently as before you wrote the book would cause you so you know you're someone who i've read a lot of your writing you notice everything you're a real writer you have a real writer's eye so you notice people looking at you oh absolutely i've always have always noticed that you've always noticed oh, it and, and one of the things I've, i i think about with this book coming out now is that you know if it does well and, and people you know get to know us and certainly in charlotte where i live you know everybody will be watching every meal i have from now on you know and and so and that's that's actually, I don't mind that, you know, it's, it's, but it's something that I have to be aware of as I'm kind of out in the world. And, it, and it, But you must have always, but I mean, yes. but I mean, I imagine that if you go into any restaurant at 400 pounds sure. and order the fried chicken platter, yes. you know, people are looking at oh, you. Oh, absolutely. No question. And I've had people come up to me. You know, and that like strangers come up to me. And I, uh, I still remember we were, my wife and I were in, in the mountains one day and a guy just came up to us at our table and said, you need to, you know, you shouldn't eat stuff like that. You need to lose weight. I mean, I, I can remember, I remember this one thing when I used to do stand up. I would say uh, that I was standing somewhere eating an ice cream cone and I, I knew that, uh, that I was a no wonder. But, but at, <laughs> at least I hadn't quite become a how could he. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's that good. Was, no, that well, was the line it, between well, a no wonder and a how could he. Well, you know, it's funny. It, it, the comedy shows, things like that. I never want to be the person that gets pointed out in the audience. You know, I never. I, well, that's I, the great Don Rickles thing, which is if you see um, a fat guy in the front row, make fun of his tie, uh, and then he'll love you forever. Oh, that's I would have brilliant, I, the brilliant, brilliant like idea. Yes, yes. And, but I never like. I try to never put myself in that kind of situation where I could be sort of pointed out and mocked. Um, and by the way, I'm using the word fat because I, Tommy uses it freely yeah. and I use it freely about myself. And yeah. so if, if other people would like to use something else for themselves or for other people, that's fine with me. I'm a fat guy. Right. And I, I consider myself that too. Yeah. So that's just uh, the truth though. I'm, I'm, I'm working very hard at it now too, because I, I had this notion the other day and um, I had this thought the other day that, it's probably been 25 years since I even had any sense. Unlike you, I've had moments of being under 200 pounds, under 180 pounds. And it's been so long since I knew what it was like 
to be able to run up and down a basketball court. Right. To actually live as somebody in in good shape, and it's still within reach for me with a dedicated six months of living, really, that I I feel like I can choose then not to be that. But I just once want to know what it's like to fly again is a way to say it, right? To have that that sort of uh, that feeling, and and again, you know, uh, I don't I don't mean to be comparing myself to you. I I know that I'm at six feet to twenty five. I'm in a different place. Everybody has their own. But for bar, me, right? but for me, it's um, I went to play basketball with my son who's 23 and plays every day and his buddy. And I haven't been playing a lot lately. And like you, I'm a lifelong basketball fanatic. And, uh, you know, I couldn't play defense really yeah, at all. Now I was, now guys listening to play with my whole life might say, Kaufman, you're always just chucking the basket. You're never much of a <laughs> defender. And I, that's true, but at least and, I would now, try. Even, even if you wanted to. You now, know. you know, it's, we walked up the basketball court and my son looked at me and he was like, come on, like you're a real basketball player. What are you doing? And, oh man. Yeah, man. And, 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 uh, because he loves the fact that I can still really shoot and I can, but he was like, come on, you gotta, if you're out there, you gotta be able to defend a little. And so I, I, I really relate to you because I, like you can accomplish and have accomplished so many things in so many areas, but this thing feels impossible all the time. Right. It's just, it's the one hurdle that I've never been able to get over. And I think it's, it's, I don't know, I'm not sure if it's worse, but it feels worse in some ways that I do have accomplishments in other parts of my life because I think I could do all that stuff. Why can't I do this? Yeah, because you had a job. I, I, I want to talk about this because you're not, you know, you're, you're not only defined. In fact, you, you decided to define yourself this way. Sure. To most readers... As you've said, most readers of your column, you were just a guy with the kind of chubby face above your column. Yeah. Nobody cared or thought about it. You've decided you were going to write this book and really talk about it. Yeah, I, I brought this part of it on myself, for but sure. But you were, um, for a very long time, a columnist, which is, a, for a writer, one of the most plum jobs in the world, right? It was for a sweet. major, yeah. important newspaper where you had a loyal readership. Yeah. And talk about what that felt like to be well I, I got that job when i was 33 so i was probably one of the younger uh local columnists in the country and uh it's it's for a newspaper writer it's the dream job at least it was for me you know you get to you get to cover the waterfront you get to write all different kinds of stories twice a week uh it was started out four times a week right um and uh cover all kinds of stories and you get to get to the heart of things in a way that's more difficult to do in a news story. Um, and you get to, you know, give of yourself, talk about things personally every so often. And I did that. Um, and so all those things are wonderful. Um, the, the one downside of it is that your face is in the paper and my face we had double chins on it. And so the way people react if they didn't like something I wrote was they wouldn't say, I disagree with what you said. They're like, well, you're a fat ass. Why should anybody listen to you, basically? And, and I think a, a, a large, a big theme of the criticism that I would get as a columnist was, how dare you judge other people when you clearly can't control this thing in yourself? And, and, and how would that make you feel, dude? Like that's like, so I know that I'm someone with very little self-hatred 
the only like I I was raised like you were by two loving parents. I had I had issues at school, probably related to undiagnosed ADHD, boredom, thinking I was smarter than a bunch of people. Um, but essentially, I. I'm aware of whatever I've accomplished. I'm aware of why. I know where hard work played a role. But there's something in this area that I could, I could, uh, uh, while I'm eating the slice of pizza, the self hatred can kick in. Oh yeah. And how did you manage it for such a long? How how did you how did you process it and manage it? How did you have moments of of light and joy and joy? Because your book shows that you had the the turn for me in response and in hearing that criticism or figuring out how to deal with it. Not my criticism, the criticism from people. From readers, yeah. Would be was was when I realized that everybody's going through their own shit and this is how it happens to come out that morning. One thing that would happen was I would often get, you know, the paper comes out, lands on your doorstep at six in the morning. I'd come to work and I'd have voicemails from like 6.01 a.m. And those are never good voicemails, right? Right. And so somebody would just lay into me about something. They were either up all night or they had to get up at five to go to work. Exactly. And so every once in a while, those people would leave their phone numbers. And when they did, I would always call them back. And when I called them back, 95% of the time, the first thing they would say is, God, I'm so sorry I did that. You know, the kids were driving me crazy. I had to get to work. My car's not working right. We can't pay the bills, whatever. Whatever shit they're going through, they they vented it onto me. It is a huge insight to know that everybody, if you just treat everybody like they might be having their worst day, right. it makes you get much less angry. But I'm asking a different question. Yeah, what I'm asking you really is, is about how, self-hatred. Yeah. And about how to talk, how do you, how do you talk to it? You know, it's that Jim Carroll, when he made the thing to uh, about Kurt Cobain, he talks about dealing with the monkey on your shoulder. Sure. How, I mentioned that, which I talked about with Seth Godin a little bit this weekend, but uh, on the pod, but how, what was your self-talk like? How would you talk yourself off the ledge? So, you know, in college, if you took down three pizzas and <laughs> four, you know, a case of beer. Yeah, yeah. Where in that are you getting a hold of yourself or when and I think part of it was just thinking you know I mean it sounds like the Stuart Smalley thing but it's like damn it I'm a good person I really am I, I have this thing that I can't figure out but I know from all this other evidence from all the people who like me from my parents who love me from my friends and, and whatever I know there's some goodness here and, and if I can just apply some of those other things to this thing then maybe I can get past it. And so that was, I think, part of it. I think ultimately what I, you know, and what I kind of, part of what I come to in the book is realizing that I feel like I had not grown up in a lot of ways. Uh-huh. And that I had, you know, I think because I was so big as a child, that I feel like I missed out on so many things when I was a kid. And that angry kid was still in there wanting to be satisfied in a way that I could no longer satisfy him. And that was sort of a big turning point for me as an adult was figuring out how to, how to deal with that and how to, and, and, and well, in the book, you also talk about how you started to realize the cost on other people. 
Sure, yeah. That in other people in there worry or in the way you could be with them, going out at night, being there for your wife in the ways you wanted to be. Yeah, and that's you know, part of what I, and the, the model for me on this was David Carr's book, Night of the Gun, where he went back and like re-reported his life as a drug addict. And, and so that book was a big model for me and something I cared about a lot as I was writing my book. And so I literally like sent a questionnaire to like 30 of my friends and, and people like that and said, what do you, do you talk about me when I'm not around? Right. And if, if so, what kind of conversations do you have? And you got back that everyone was worried you were going to die. Exactly. That's right. That's right. And no one knew how to approach you. And that's the, when you were at a meal with a friend and the menus would come to the table, can you just walk me through what you were going through as you looked at them what they felt like? I never, well, now I know. You What'd know, you think then? I didn't, I honestly didn't think about it. I was, I was enjoying the, the camaraderie with my friends. I was, and, and here's the other thing about this. I never ordered huge meals relative to everybody else. What I would do is I would eat something with my friends and then I'd get something else on the way home. You know, like uh, one of my, a couple of my friends said, like, we never understood how you gained so much weight because when we were together, you were getting what we got. And what they didn't see is I'm going through the Wendy's drive through on the way home and basically having like a second. What would be your dinner. typical Wendy's drive through uh, It's the, I had the double cheeseburger combo, man. Double cheeseburger, a, a appetizer burger, a little junior. Right. Junior, first the junior burger. First the junior burger, then the big one and the fries and usually like a Dr. Pepper. And I, there was one, there's a Wendy's that was the closest one to our house that I would go to all the time. And I'm in the drive through one day and I start giving my order and the, and the cashier finishes it for me. Like I, I she knew it from well, my Well, you voice. have a distinctive voice. Well, I have a distinctive voice, but you know. And I mean, would you tell like your a, wife when you got home that you- No, never. Or you were hiding the eating? Oh, absolutely. She, uh, I would, I would do it in a way that I thought, or I, you know, thought I was being clever. I would, you know, pull over somewhere and throw out the trash on the way home, or I would do it when I knew she wouldn't be well, around. Well, that all allows you to be in a state of denial as well, right? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Be, I mean, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm trying to get to this moment of turn for you, which is you're, you're clearly, and just from the community you're in, you're, you were always like a beloved person with a big friend group. Sure. And, and, you, and a wife that you loved. And as you said, you married. I, I don't like that expression. People say they married outside of their class because it means their wife married. But basically, <laughs> you put your wife on a pedestal. You think she's a great person, she is, beautiful yeah. and great and wonderful. Yes. And I'm wondering if you were able to then tell yourself, maybe I'm not that big. Maybe it's not that big a deal. Well, I think there were times when certainly I felt really beloved, you know, and, you know, if I won an award or, you know, or something really good happened in our lives where I could convince myself I should just keep being what I am. Yeah, oh, this yeah, is going, right. This, like yourself. Be comfortable in your own this, skin. This is going pretty well, you know, and then then I would, you know, two days later be like face down in a, in a double cheeseburger <laughs> and realize this can't last, you know, because as you said, ultimately I was not only hurting myself and really making myself miserable, but I was doing this to the people I cared about too. And that, well, that, realizing that I think was part of the turn for me and also realizing that there was this like, you know, unresolved childhood anger, I think. At what? I, at, at, at myself mostly for like, at the ver at the kid that I was for, for not, for sort of wasting those years. And I think part of it is, you know, certainly my mom and dad didn't have the, the, 
I don't psychological resources or whatever to help me through those things. Um, they tried. I mean, they my mom and dad tried all the like diet plans they knew at the time, which was mostly like fad diet stuff. You know, I I I think it was almost like this just unfocused anger at what I missed out on, and I don't I don't really. I blame myself partly. I blame my family partly. I blame society partly. I don't really know. There's nobody I can point to and say, it's you, you know, but th- it's still there. There's this really deep moment in the book where where I felt a lot of catharsis when you talk about this realization that it cost the person you love the most, your wife, a lot. Sure. Yes. And can you? And I felt like that, because there, there are moments in the book where you're thinking of, of cashing in this idea of losing the, you know, you, you're, there are months where you lose eight pounds and then there are months where you gain a pound. Yeah. And it's great. For anyone who struggled with this issue, Tommy talks about it in the, or any issue like this in the most direct and brutal way. And really you understand we've all been on a journey like this where there's progress and there's backsliding. And, but there is a moment where you realize, well, we didn't have kids together. We didn't, there are, there are all these ways in which she didn't really sign up for this kind of sacrifice. And that seemed to me to push you to a place of, well, fuck, I have to honor this somehow. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little? Well, I, I, that's absolutely true. I feel like, you know, we, we, I have limited her life because of the limits on mine. And, and of course, she never said that. She never you. said that. But there are, you know, when we met, um, she was a big runner. She hiked. She did all this outdoor stuff. And, and I basically married her and sort of dragged her toward me because it was so much easier for her to live the way I lived than for me to live the way she was living, you know? And so, um, this whole time we had good times together. We've had good times together too, right? In fact, the vast majority of, of them have been good, but in moments where there would be something about strenuous exercise or something we want to do together. It would always be, can we, can I do it? Can we accommodate what I need for that? You know, um, can we make it to this place without me like collapsing or even more just me being so totally anxious about it that I was an asshole. Sure. Right. You know, and just to this day, every time we travel, you know, especially if it's an airplane, because yes. airplanes are sort of fraught for me. You know, she tell I'm just a I'm just a jerk in the hours leading up to it because I'm so nervous. You're so self conscious and anxiety. I'm so self conscious about it. I'm so worried about getting on the plane right and getting staying out of people's way, and I'm like, I have to pee during the flight and get up and move five people out of the way to get in that little tiny fucking airport airplane bathroom. All those little things just make me an asshole, you know, in those moments. And she didn't sign up for that. How did she react when she read that passage in the book? Well, I mean, she... Where particularly we talk about not having kids and not yeah, all that stuff. Well, I mean, she experienced all those things. I mean, she she's smart enough to know... But to hear you lay it out, I imagine. Yeah. She, I, we had lots of discussions before, during, and after this has come out about what this would mean for us and what yes. the, the other she's a uh, much more naturally private person than I am and this I think these things I've written about in the book are many of them harder for her to see out in the public than it is for me because I've written lots of personal essays of and course. stuff like that and so 
we had lots of discussions about, you know, how are you going to feel about this? And, and how do you feel now that the world's going to know about it or whatever? But I, I, to get back to your question, I think she, I, I don't want to speak for her, but I feel like, I think she felt um, some relief that I could see what she saw. And that mattered to her that I wasn't ignoring it, that I wasn't like pushing away or compartmentalizing, yes. that I owned up to whatever it was. How do you think you changed during the course of this year that you write about? Um, one thing that Alex will say about me is that she feels like I'm much more lighthearted now. That I really want, getting it out. Yeah, they get it, that I'll tell you, Brian, just writing, you know, those words, I weigh four hundred and sixty pounds, which I did at the beginning of the book. That was such a weight off my shoulders to like tell that I felt like here's here's what it felt like. I felt like I could it was hard for me to have really deep conversations with the people I cared about. Oh yeah. Because I was holding back this secret and so I couldn't ask them for theirs. Well, because you know? they could, right, that's deep, man, because, well, also because that's why you say the elephant in the room, because they couldn't look at you and say, what the fuck, Tommy? Right. What the right. fuck is, are we not, are we going to sit here and not talk about the fact that you're 500 pounds right. and could die? Yeah. And they couldn't, the fact that they couldn't ar articulate that. It's funny, even at, even at my weight, I make it a point to say uh, something about being a fat guy often in conversation. Uh, just now, because- that are you holding yourself accountable there or what are you doing there? Yeah. I don't know. I think I'm just saying like, don't worry about it. Like if I'm, I, and again, um, I make more of it than is there, but I still bring it up because yeah. often be, uh, just to make the whole conversation like, yeah, we're all on even footing, say whatever the fuck you want. Right. And Especially if I'm going to go out, you know, if we're going to go out to eat and I'm going to decide, to order a cheeseburger. Tonight's the cheeseburger night, right? Yeah. So that, and that for me was, once I put that out there, and, and the whole book is basically, I, I, I when I set out to write it, I said, if I'm going to do it, man, I'm going to do it. I'm not going to be a phony about it. I'm not going to hold shit back. I'm going to tell the truth and, and as hard it is, you know, as, as it is sometimes, because I people can spot when somebody's a phony about this stuff. And I don't, the one thing I wanted was for, and nothing else, I wanted to be an honest accounting. Well, yeah, this is a, a thing Seth Godin and I were talking about on the podcast last week, which is the goal as you get older is to be comfortable in your skin. Right. To not try to put on for other people anything, to for yourself. Just because we know, you know, I'm 52 years old, so... I don't know, maybe I got another 40 years, maybe I got another 30 years, right? right. Maybe I, have, I mean, I could walk out of this trailer we're in and get hit by a car. So why spend one minute not, that doesn't, but it, what's hard is it doesn't mean don't continue to try to improve. Don't continue, don't, don't think that means just, but accepting who you are and accepting your deficiencies can lead you to, the hope is, to fixing those deficiencies without turning it into a hating yourself, right? Yeah, and I, I feel like you know, every day you kind of sit around and think, okay, today did I, did I give it my best shot? 
you know, if you give it your best shot that day, then you walk into tomorrow with more confidence and less, you know, self-hatred or whatever. And, uh, and then when you start stringing together some of those best shot days, then for me anyway, that's when I did start to feel more comfortable. Do you still find yourself wrestling with yourself as you walk oh, in to the table? Sure, absolutely. What happens? What's, what's well, going yeah, on in your head? I still think about, first of all, I think, you know, that pizza looks a lot fucking better than the salad does today. You know, I think about that every time. Um, but if, but what, the, I guess it's sort of hard one maturity that I've gotten helps me to think, yeah, but if I eat that salad today, I might still be here when I'm 80. And I want to be here when I'm 80 because that, you know, it's that great line from uh, um, Olive Kittredge. You know, life is just totally baffling to me. I don't want to leave it. Sure. You know, that's that's me. But we're and, very bad as human beings at delayed gratification, right? Um, well, that's, We're really bad at it. We're really bad at delayed gratification as human beings, right? Yeah. Have you? Do you feel you've actually gotten better I, at it? I have, and I think that is a huge has been a huge key for me is to understand that and, and understand not just on an intellectual level, because I've always understood that, but just sort of on a deep emotional level and a sort of a self improvement level that delayed gratification is it's a, a guy Lou Powell that used to work for the paper with me. said that's the one key sign of being an adult, the ability to accept delayed gratification. And that's, you know, the kid in me didn't want that. No, it gets angry, right? Angry. Yes. As I relate to the idea of being angry at something, why something in the world I that, that I can't go and eat the thing that I want to eat. Exactly. Which then leads to eating with a kind of abandon when you finally Right, because when you get there, it's like, well, you know, Katie Bartlett-Door, you're, you're going to do everything. Yeah, then. fuck it. I'm just going to go to town. Absolutely. And that's and that's the whole thing about, you know, that sort of binge mentality that if I'm, I'm going, I'm going in a place of glory. You know, so if I'm going to eat, you know, one cheeseburger, why not two cheeseburgers? And then that'll be in a state of, you'll get yourself in a state of some kind of reverie to, to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there is an and incredible, I've never, I've never done hard drugs, but what I, the, the bliss that a great meal brings, I assume is kind of what like a heroin addict feels when that needle first goes in that just total, everything's great with the world. I feel totally mellow. Whatever's in that grease and, you know, fat and salt that's in, you know, the stuff that I love, I get, I feel that bliss. And once you felt it and it's so easily available, it's hard to give it up. Yeah. We have a family friend, a wonderful, wonderful writer named Soman Chiani who's, uh, wrote um, the book for good and evil, the, the series of books that are huge bestsellers. And Soman was a, a tutor in our n neighborhood when my kids were young and, and then wrote this first book during that time. So I've watched this whole thing, but he's incredibly, he was a college athlete. He's incredibly thin, basically vegan. And uh, he was talking online yesterday to, to, to Sammy and he said, he's about to finish his next, oh, Sam was in an airport and tweeted that, he ate McDonald's and, and Sam, my boy, he's in, he's in good shape. Uh, he hadn't had a McDonald's in a really long time. And he was like the most underrated thing is a Big Mac. And Soman online said, I've never had one. And so Sammy was like, I can't even imagine what would happen. This is all on Twitter. <laughs> if you actually ate one. And I said, I came over the top and I said, I can tell you what will happen. I said, Soman, for 20 minutes, you will feel like a God, like a yes. superhero. Yes. I said, for, for that system of yours, for 20 minutes, when that fat and sugar and animal protein is coursing through your veins. I said, but then 
because your body's a temple for two. You'd be yeah, for right. two weeks. You'd be paying the price. Yeah, but just think that. Just but think, that moment, and just think how many like billions of dollars of research have have gone into making that taste. The well, way that's the done. hedonic experience, as the food industry calls it. That right, the perfect combination of salt. Fat and sweet is called the hedonic experience, right. and they have programmed it. Well, that was Sammy's point. Was he probably hadn't had um, a Big Mac, and I bet you he hadn't had one in five years, and and he ate the Big Mac and was like, right. It just crushes you. Oh, it's, it's so a, good. Yeah. That'd and the problem big, is you and I looking at each other, we could each take down three oh right now God, without even thinking of it. Unbe- no, unquestionably, yeah. Like if it was next door, that would be trouble. And so what do you do now to get through your days, man? So I, I try to reward myself with other things, basically. You know, it used to be like, for example, my wife and I have been talking about this uh, if I have a book coming out, it's a huge moment in my life. Normally what we do at these huge moments, we go have this great dinner beforehand. It's like, okay, what can we do that's not that? Can we just go to the, the coffee shop and get like one little pastry and split it and just talk for three hours well, about what this moment's going to be get like? Get the pastry and go walk for two months. Well, that too, yes. Yeah, so we've done that. We did that yesterday, in fact. We just went on a little greenway in Charlotte, went for a walk, went back and had a very light lunch, and we just sat there and talked about this moment and about other stuff too. But, you know, just we just sat there for like two hours and enjoyed each other's company in a way that, was more difficult before because I was so anxious and and tied up in all this. It's a stuff. brave and beautiful book, dude. I, I remember sitting there reading it, and uh, as soon as I opened it and read the first chapter, I was so thankful to you that you wrote it, that you went that deep, that you were that honest, that empathetic, uh, because the fact that there are so many of us who have this constant battle, this constant conversation with ourselves, and this thing that constantly knocks us down in some way. And you articulate deeply how to process it, and you do kind of light the path toward change. And I I will say I I remain inspired by it, and I too have been doing much better because I'm aware of the possible, I'm like, if Tommy can take off 85 pounds, like <laughs> I can lose my 30, you know? Right, right. Um, and uh, the hard part is, and, and, and I know there are people who are listening to this podcast who are going to email me and offer to help. And it's beautiful. And I've, the thing is we know how to lose weight. I know sure. all that every diet, every eating plan, every possible method by which I could do it. The problem and the question is how to, leverage myself to doing it and your book is a huge piece of leverage for me which is why i'm so grateful and why i wanted to have you on here because it it is one of those things that i can pick up the book and look at it and remember why i need to leverage myself into eating better today or tomorrow well that means the world to me and i think i think and hope that it won't be just for people who are struggling with their weight, too. That is for, first of all, the people who Dude, love. if you just get the people struggling with their weight, yeah, that's 65% a, that's of that's the United States of America. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I feel like that's that's a good reach. But, but I think, you know, like we talked about before, everybody's got something, right? 
and and these patterns of sort of self-hatred and uh, short-term bliss and delayed gratification, they're very common in all kinds of addictions, obsessions, whatever you want to call it. Yes. And so I hope that this shows people that even if they're not struggling with their weight, that other people are dealing with the same sorts of things. Everybody's got something. Hey, read Tommy Tomlinson's book, The Elephant in the Room, One Fat Man's Quest to Get Smaller in a Growing America. Order the book. I can guarantee you that you will have a great time reading it. You can find Tommy. He's a great Twitter follow. On Twitter, you're at? at Tommy Tomlinson, yeah. He's on Instagram too, though not as active. Right. You're more a Twitter person. Yeah, mostly a Twitter guy. Um, you can find me at Brian Koppelman on Twitter, on Instagram too. Uh, you can email me at the moment, BK, at gmail.com. Tommy, thank you for doing this, man. Great to talk to you. Uh, it's my pleasure, Brian. Thanks, man. Next time we'll talk uh, like the music geeks we are. Absolutely. Talk music and basketball. Just music now. and hoops. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm sorry your Georgia Bulldogs lost that game, but I'm happy that my buddy Herb Hands You're not that Longhorns won because, <laughs> uh, you know, hook them horns. All right. Thanks, everybody. See you next time.